0: Welcome back to the Work Bold Podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions, space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, a fund manager, developer, property manager, agent, or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and we're at the halfway point of season three. In this episode five, I chat with KPMG's head of UK real estate, Andy Pyle. Andy and I often debate, or shall I say conversate, That is a word. Go go ahead and Google it. Uh, We often talk on Twitter, so I thought it would be cool to get Andy onto the show. So Andy believes that space-as-a-service mindset is going to end up being 100% of the real estate market. He says COVID has driven corporate occupiers to ask why they have offices. And many occupiers will end up giving space back to landlords via break clauses, defaults, or at-lease events. Therefore, a lot of space will need to be repurposed to meet the demand of what people want. This means real estate is becoming a business-to-consumer proposition, his words, and the capital markets need to get their head around valuing the income streams generated through the multiple service layers of the space-as-a-service model. In this episode, you're going to hear how KPMG values space-as-a-service assets, why Andy believes service drives retention and value, and how repurposing retail assets as -as space-as-a-service can not only save retail landlords but also support local entrepreneurs and spur job creation. Now, as always, if you have any questions or feedback on this episode or topics you want covered, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Caleb underscore Parker or email podcast at wordbold.co. Now, just before we start, I want to ask you a favor. If you're enjoying the Wordbold podcast, I'd be really grateful if you leave us a five-star review in your podcast app. Thank you so much. Now, let's dive into this episode. Welcome back to the Bold Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and today I'm joined by Andy Pyle, who is head of UK real estate for KPMG in the UK. Andy is responsible for overseeing all of the firm services to real estate clients. He leads KPMG's transaction advice to fund managers, direct investors, and corporates on large and complex real estate acquisitions and disposals, particularly portfolio deals or where assets are sold in corporate structure. He is a chartered accountant and has significant experience as a reporting accountant on real estate IPOs and capital market transactions. With 25 years of professional experience, of which the last 18 has been as a full-time transaction advisor, as you can imagine, Andy has advised a number of investors who have bought and sold real estate assets in the UK and Europe across the diverse range of sectors, including... Commercial office, retail, shopping mall, industrial, warehousing, logistics, residential, self-storage, student accommodation, and serviced office sectors, covering both development and investment assets. So basically, he's covered it all. He's advised on some of the largest transactions in the European real estate market. You may have seen Andy on stage at one of the industry's top conferences. He regularly speaks on the impact of tech disruption on the real estate sector. And speaking of tech, Andy leads the Technology and Innovation Working Group for the British Property Federation and was placed sixth on the Lindenvest PropTech Power List. If you're on Twitter, go follow Andy. He's at Andy J. Pyle, and he often challenges our industry with thought-provoking commentary that's landed him on Duke Long's top 100 commercial real estate people you must follow on Twitter. Welcome to the Workbold podcast, Andy.
1: Thank you, Caleb. Uh, Thank you for that intro as well. So, uh, yeah. Really pleased to be here. Looking forward to the discussion.
0: Uh, likewise, I'm really, really looking forward to myself. So let's kick off. Um, obviously, this is a Space as a Service podcast, so let's dive into Space as a Service. KPMG has been following the growth of this subsector over the last few years, and you've been quite vocal on Twitter. Do you agree with the prediction that Space as a Service will grow to 30% of the overall office stock by 2030?
1: So I think yes, I do, and I think it's worth unpicking though some of the macro drivers for all of this, because this has been a you know a fast growing part of of the market. Um, it's important to recognise that the people that operate in this in this part of the market have a customer experience sort of focus to them, and and are focused on giving customers what they want, um, and that's really been uh, you know a welcome change I think for the real estate industry as as a whole. Moving away from this whole sort of landlord-tenant description. If we look at the underlying drivers right now, you know, coronavirus has just given us a mass remote working experiment, and so pretty much every corporate occupier now is looking hard at, you know, why do they have an office? You know, should should they actually go back to an office? If they do, what tasks do they want to um, do? They want to do in that office, and and why do they have it? And so I think you're going to see pretty wholesale repurposing of what activities are actually done in a central office um, and therefore the market's going to get very very dynamic you're also going to see I think quite a lot of space handed back uh, from from occupiers because they're going to look to reduce their cost and so I think the space is a service proposition and the you know either the asset owners that do that or or the operators are going to be really really well placed to capitalize on that and it's just going to be what what occupiers want, i.e. the customers. So I think mean, that's probably some of the macro factors that are going to drive um, continued strong growth for this area.
0: And the 30% number, that was a prediction that came from from JLL prior to, to this pandemic. And some um, people in the industry, and even some people who have come on the podcast uh, this this season and last, has said that there's been an acceleration. And do you think 30% might be too low?
1: I mean, I think, I think ultimately, real estate is becoming a more sort of business-to-consumer uh, type of proposition. So I think it absolutely could be too low. Ultimately, um, you know, you're going to want to have customers that, that stay with you as, as, a, as an owner of the asset or as an operator of the asset. And so by providing more services to customers, um, that, that you expect will, will improve um, customer retention, as well yeah. as improving the margins that you can make. Um, so so yeah, I think I think it could be. I mean, there are still going to be some big occupiers though that you know are, are, are quite happy to sort of provide the services themselves. But again, I think people are going to look at that. So so yeah, I mean, whether it gets to fifty percent, um, you know, I, I I I don't know. And I think it depends upon how you define it as well. Um, but undoubtedly, it's it's going to become a really really large part of the, the the office stock. And actually, apart from anything else you know, and we've seen this with some of the big landlords that have, have introduced their own space as a service offer, that's changed how they think about the rest of their space. So I think what you're going to see is like the space as a service mindset is going to end up being 100% of the market, right? Because that's going to be focused on customer experience um, and, and you know, and, and, and treating corporate occupiers as a customer rather than as a tenant. Um, The amount that sort of where you are selling additional services or where you've got a more flexible lease rather than, say, a sort of a 5, 10, 15 year traditional lease. I don't know. But I think the mindset is going to need to become universal.
0: Well, I can agree with you on that 100 percent. You know, David Kearns with CBRE out in Toronto, he was uh, explaining that uh, he's seen some transactions, some deals that have been put together um, where the. Occupier, the big corporate tenant is bringing in a space as a service operator as sort of a third party to the transaction with the landlord and saying, look, in order for us to do this deal, you've also got to do a deal with this uh, space as a service operator because we need access to that space on a flexible and agile basis. Do you think there's going to be more of, of that sort of transaction going or how do you expect landlords to respond to this?
1: Yeah. So I think I think that there is going to be more of this it's going to come back, you know, in a, in a few different ways. So firstly, I think a lot of the a lot of the more um, kind of enlightened, I would say, uh, landlords that, that we can see in London have recognised that they need to have spaces of services as, as an important part of their sort of product suite. You know, some of them have decided to, to do it their, their, themselves. And you've seen that with British Land, Landsec uh, and, and the Crown Estate. Um, you know, others have decided to go down a partnership approach and, and work with an operator. Um, but ultimately, I think, you know, landlords are going to need, need this is an essential part of the product mix. Um, if they don't have it, that, you know, you're going to see more of these um, these occupiers doing um, what what the one in your example did, i.e., you know, yeah, we want this space, but we want it. We want it actually on flexible terms and we want someone that's going to basically operate it for you because that isn't something that you do. So for the big pension funds and um, some of the institutional investors that don't have particularly large teams and don't really want to get into this operating bit, that you know, they're going to have to think about how they access this, but, but undoubtedly, they're going to need it. The other thing I think you're going to see, though, is you know I mentioned big corporate occupiers looking to reduce their footprint. And I think in some cases, I think there's, op- or there's going to be opportunities there for space as a service operators to go to these big corporate occupiers and say, look, you want to take 30, 30 40% uh, you know, out of your footprint, but you don't have a lease break for another sort of 8, 10 years. Um, we could effectively run that space for you and you know, come up with an appropriate sort of um, you know, revenue sharing model reduces mm-hmm. the cost for the corporate occupier, but makes sure that there's enough incentive, you know, there for, for the space as a service operator for, you know, for that to be a worthwhile thing for them to do. And, you know, there's already been some publications coming out about, you know, the the large amount of expected um, you know, so-called gray space for, you know, when tenants hand stuff back coming onto the market. That's another way that I think you could see these transactions um, you know, running. And I've seen some big operators already. Trying to get around a lot of the big corporates to tell them effectively, look, you've got some options here. Don't just think that if you if you haven't got a lease break, you know, you don't just have to go and speak to your landlord and try and see if you can do a deal. You know, we could we could maybe help you out. So that'll be a driver as well.
0: Well, I think that's an interesting point. The the gray space concept and 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 that's been around for years because companies um, since they have to take these long term leases historically, they've always take often taken more space than what they need thinking they're going to grow into it or they've had to downsize it, but they still have the space. And so the gray space, I don't think has been talked about as part of this prediction of the growth of space as a service. So if there's opportunities for, for that, some of that space to turn into space as a service that could push that 30% up, up the scale even more, you know, obviously you and, and your, your colleagues at KPMG advise real estate investors, um, you know, private equity as they acquire assets. Do you do you think the capital markets need to recognise the growth of the space as a service trend?
1: I mean, they have in part. I mean, I think they do. Um, they have in part. I mean, you've seen big investors like Blackstone go into the uh, you know, the office group. You've seen, um, oh, it's now called the Argyle Club. Uh, was sort of London executive offices. Uh, you know, pass through sort of actually multiple sort of private ownership. So and then obviously we have we have iwg that that's, that, that's the primary listed company in the in, in the uk so i think we're going to see more of more of this um, i mean i think the challenge for, for real estate investors is just getting their head around the fact that um, you know for for their entire career they've been looking hard at you know a, t- a 10 15 20 year lease is better than you know a short-term, uh, sure. short term short short term revenue model but actually, uh, you, you can look at it as a portfolio because it's smaller companies. I think they, they, they are going to need to give some more thought to, um, you know, not just the sort of shorter term nature of the revenue, but but recognizing that there is customer stickiness, you know. And, and, you know, I, I would argue that from a risk perspective, you know, I've got a building that's let, uh, you know, on, on sort of shorter term uh, license type of arrangements on a space as a service basis with with additional revenue coming off, you know. Why is that less valuable than, say, a building let to a single uh, occupier on on a ten year lease? Because ultimately, you know, if they choose to leave, then your income goes to zero. Well, with a space as a service asset, and I've I've seen this happen through multiple recessions. You know, the income never goes to zero, and so the risk profile and 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 you know the, the revenue enhancement that you can get uh, from selling additional services to your customers. I think that that is something which the capital markets still need to do more thinking about. I don't think they've got to the right position yet.
0: Well, I think that's an excellent point. Hits the nail on the head uh, for me. There's a lot of talk about flex and the flex aspect of space as a service. Uh, But to me, flex is just a mechanism or a feature of space as a service. And, you know, I, I understand sort of the change in mindset that's required from going thinking about this long term forward looking revenue. To looking at this revenue that might come in 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 different multiple streams, multiple revenue streams that go up and down regularly, even daily. But like you said, in in a in a recession, companies need flexibility. And in a in a fast-growing economy, in a in a in a very strong economy, people need flexibility because they're growing so fast. So it's like that revenue never goes away to zero, like you said. But if we're talking about these multiple service layers, multiple revenue streams going up and down very volatile, how does commercial real estate or how do the capital markets value this?
1: Yeah, I mean it's <clears throat> that's that's really the challenge because, you know, the and an RICS that, you know, effectively holds the pen on valuation standards, you know, has has been looking hard at this over the past sort of couple of years because they recognize that the Know, the traditional approach of just, you know, looking, looking at sort of the forward rental book and, you know, how long does that expire for and applying a, a cap rate uh, to it does, doesn't really sort of work, you know, quite the same way. So I think when, you know, when, when I, I think when, when, we, when we look at things, you know, I would see um, if I take an example of a business that, you know, owns its real estate, then operates it through a space as a service model. We would look at the valuation, I think, much more around a sort of sum of the parts, because you've got intrinsic value within within the real estate. So, you know, if it was, if it, if the building was let uh, as a traditional office, this is what you would get for it. You know, in terms of the rental level, this would be the lease, and you can make some assumptions around all of that and say, okay, there's an intrinsic value to the building. Then. You know, through selling the space through space as a service, you generate obviously a significant increment on a per square square footage basis through partly sort of breaking down, you know, an individual floor floor plate into smaller lot sizes. Um, but also by providing a greater level of service to to to, to the customers, whether that's just meeting or just simply taking the load off actually operating a building by doing all of that for them. And so then I think you have to look at the, the the additional revenue and profit stream that comes from that, um, and almost trying to value that as you know as 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 a business um, as opposed to thinking about it as 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 a property or rent portfolio. Because you know there's plenty of instances now where I think you can um, you can look at those revenue streams and you can say, well, okay, I can then apply sort of a sensible EBITDA multiple to these to the different revenue streams. And if you need to, you can apply differential multiples to the different parts of those revenue streams, depending upon your view around the quality of those underlying earnings. So that's how you know, we would see the need here to really look at these businesses as a business rather than it just being a pure property value. But you also can't move away from the fact that there is some intrinsic value to the property where you own it as as well.
0: Just in that example, would you say that there would be two valuations sort of being two? Methodologies applied to the asset: one for the asset itself, and one to value the, the revenue that's coming in. It's sort of two different valuations.
1: Effectively, yeah So it's sort of a, it's like a sum of the parts, isn't it? So you 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 tr- what you need to try and do here is just because you've got quite a complex operation or or, or or situation, you know, or more complex than just a you know a vanilla office with, you know, with with some long-term leases in place, you. I think you need to just break it down into its component parts and recognize that those different, different parts of the business have got different valuation drivers. So, yeah, that's that's exactly what I think you need to do. That's interesting. And uh, I think it makes me think of
0: um, HB Revis here in London, where they're not just in London, but they have uh, their hubbub product, which is their their flex or their space as a service operation, which is it's a business within the business. And so they'll have an asset where maybe 40, just under 50% of the asset is hub hub. And the rest of the asset is an HB Revis, whatever their uh, SPV or operating entity is on the building that leases out the rest of the space on a conventional term. So if they were to then sell that asset on, um, the new buyer could potentially bring in their own uh, space as a service operator experience on the building or they could turn it into just complete, you know, traditional lease yeah. space all, all in one.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I agree with you on that. And, um, you know, so and I think increasingly you are going to see these, these, these sort of mixed profile of assets. You know, I remember having a conversation probably two, three years ago now with someone who was a sort of a global chief investment officer for a big institution. And he was saying, well, if I'm putting up a 25-story tower, because they do a lot of development, you know, why why wouldn't I want twenty five percent of that building um to be sold you know flexibly a, a space as a service because it's 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 actually it's what customers want and I think increasingly you know if you're going into a into a large building um it's going to be very attractive to you as a prospective occupier to know that hey look there's there's you know two three four floors out of say twenty that are available on flexible terms because that gives you a much greater sense around. Well, look, you know, future proofing. If I need some more space, uh, then I can potentially take some of those, ex- you know, those extra floors on a flexible basis. But also, if I find that I actually need less space than I've got, well, I've got an operator in the building who I can have a conversation with about, you know, maybe maybe sort of um, reletting some of the space I've now got that surplus. So I think that model becomes really really attractive and almost is going to become like. I think market standard um, for for all sort of, you know, large, large buildings. I think for smaller buildings, you're going to see stuff that might be 100%, you know, either flex or 100% non-flex still. But I think for the big towers, I think that's going to have to be the way that they'll go other than the ones that are let to a, you know, one single occupier. And even then you might well see some partnerships you know between between the corporate occupier and a space as a service operator, because the corporate occupier just goes, "I don't really want to run built you know, I don't want to employ people to run buildings. Um, i I actually am more than happy to to subcontract that to somebody else who can who can do this for me." I think you're going to start seeing things like that as well.
0: Still, going back, there's a big challenge in in the capital markets. I think because you have an investor profile that's investing in low risk, low return yields um that when you bring in space as a service, it's it's more risky. And so do you expect there to be an evolution of the of investor risk profiles? Will there be the traditional REIT that invests in the low risk, low return, but more guaranteed return? And then another profile that comes in to invest in this higher risk um space as a service portion of the building or entire asset if it's a smaller asset? Do you think there needs to be a new asset class for space as a service?
1: So, so I think in terms of your first question around around the investors, there are going to be some investors who, um, who who don't really want to have massive amounts of economic sort of participation in spaces as a service. Um, these at least that that's certainly been the case up to now. You know, there's been a lot of investors who have been happy to effectively sell sort of long leases to to certain spaces of service operators i mean i think that business model of kind of leasing long and selling short gets really really challenged in, in in a recessionary environment um because you know you can't really do anything to to mitigate your lease liabilities but your customers will kind of be you know either coming to you for rent reductions or or, or able to move out pretty pretty quickly um so that model i think you know is is, uh, is is challenging. And, and interestingly, when you, you know, I've heard Mark Dixon from IWG talk about the fact that they've really looked to move away from that model and um, focus much more on sort of part, you know, partnership type arrangements where you should share the economics. And I think what's going to happen for a lot of real estate investors is, you know, if you want to invest in the bigger buildings uh, or, or bigger markets where I think space as a service is, is going to be, you know, it's going to be a high proportion of the market. You're just going to need to get your head around this. But I think the partnership model is sort of is more attractive because I think what those investors are probably realizing now is that actually it wasn't just risk-free to sort of to to, to write a 25-year lease to a large sort of space as a service operator. You know, I mean, you know we work probably being being the sort of the the, the the most noted example because ultimately, you know. You're taking operating risk on whoever is occupying your building, right? That's that to me is the sort of the, the one of the most important things about real estate. It isn't necessarily just this sort of ultra low risk, uh, ultra low return, very very steady asset class. I mean, a lot of the time it is, but you know, in times like uh, like now, where you have dislocation in the market or you have recessions you know, you, you do absolutely see that you're taking underlying operating risk on the people that are in your buildings.
0: Yeah, and I think, well, there's, I don't know if there's ever been a time like now, but um, <laughs> you, I, I certainly get your point. And, you know, in, in times where, you know, like the GFC and, you know, certainly we never we never thought that we would have something as bad or worse as the global financial crisis come again so soon in our lifetime. Um, but here we are. Um, yeah. and And I think, from, from my perspective and, and the way we've sort of looked at our company and, the, and, and we didn't go for the lease arbitrage model. We didn't think that, um, you know, that was sustainable. And, you know, certainly, we, his, you know, history and everything's hindsight. You know, we're, we're glad we're not in all these leases. We took the partnership approach with our asset manager clients. Yeah. Um, and I think that is the future. But, but in order for us to see a proliferation of that, we, we need landlords to change the mindset, going back to what you were saying earlier. there needs to be a hundred percent mindset change, but we also need the capital markets to to adjust and evolve. and whether that be, means we need a new asset class or you know we have two ways of valuing the asset, one on the principle of the building and one on the actual business and revenue of the building and look at those separately, but then together, that needs to happen. So you talked about Rick's earlier. I, I read through that Rick's document. They did an addendum to the red book and uh, it said a lot of stuff, but it didn't say much, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and um I, I just felt like it just it stopped short of the finish line. and what what do you what do you think it's going to take for the capital markets to to come up with a widely accepted evolution of the valuation methodology for space as a service?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think I, I I agree that there's more thinking that's needed by 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 Ricks. I mean, I mean, ultimately, a lot of things do come back to to you know to the red book uh, because you know, you've got a situation where the majority of the vast majority of property is valued by you know, uh, uh, by, by by a registered valuer. I think I think within space as a service, though, you know, I think you will start to see potentially some market differences where investors, you know, investors will underwrite the assets on a different basis, right? So the way that I've I've sort of talked things through, so I think investors firstly will start to underwrite these you know, spaces of service assets uh, a bit differently. And once they start doing that, i.e. by looking at the intrinsic value of the property, but then valuing the spaces of service revenue you know, as a business on top of that, then I think they're going to be looking at things and going okay, um, I, I need to look at you know my ongoing valuation. And you know, either you're going to see RICs uh, and the chartered surveying profession adapt, or you actually, you're going to see other people being used to value these sorts of assets, or, or you have a bit of both, where you have, you know, a business valuation firm um, looking at the business aspects, and you then have a, you know, you have a RICS value uh, on the underlying building, and and I think you could see you could see a number of those different things, but but I fundamentally agree with you that there's still more work that's actually needed uh, uh, here. I mean, ultimately, when you get to a, you know, whether it's 30, 40, 50 percent of the space being sold in this way, that's such a large part of the market. You know, I'm pretty sure that a solution will be found that will, you know, that that will work um, because there'll also be a lot more transaction evidence that that will start to show people, uh, show the surveyors, as it were, that, that these assets um, do need to be looked at differently to just a you know, a building with a vanilla lease structure in place.
0: I want to come back to that because in, in a moment uh, I, I, because I, I think you have an example of maybe how KPMGs help some clients value assets with spaces as a service. So I want to co- come back to that to pause that for a second. And I know we've been talking a lot about office right now, but you also have an opinion that there's some other assets and maybe even in the retail and the shopping centers where spaces as a service potentially could could, have a, could make a difference. And uh I w- was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think so so firstly, as a general statement, I think the space as a service concept is relevant to to both retail and sort of industrial and other assets as well, right? So and that's actually, you know, letting a retail asset or, or letting an industrial warehouse on and as a service sort of basis, right? So you you know, you you've got businesses like you know, appear here would be an example in retail that do that. Seagrow have just announced that they're going to start um, uh, selling some space on an as a service basis as well in in the warehousing arena. So that works there. But I think in retail, you know, we've seen Westfield announce that they want to repurpose some of uh, some of one of their one of their large centers in, in London towards space as a service in terms of office. And I mean, ultimately, we've got too much retail property in the UK. That's pretty widely acknowledged. There's been a lot of focus from government around town centre regeneration. And I think space as a service has got a lot to offer. A, a town centre that's got too much retail needs to focus on you know, local job creation, fostering a greater community of entrepreneurs by, by repurposing some of this surplus uh, retail space. You know, Office space as a service isn't going to be the, the, the silver bullet that sorts out uh, the surplus of retail property in the UK because I think you really have to look at you know the underlying purpose of a town center and of a location but I think actually in many cases it's going to really really help and again will offer more opportunities to grow and I'd see that particularly happening in you know local local town centers or regional towns as well this is you know this is going to be a much bigger thing than 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 just London for sure
0: yeah, for sure, especially if, if companies start employing the hub-and-spoke model um, that we've all talked about, uh, where people can have access to work from home, of course, or, or work from anywhere, as I like to say now. Because um, since not everybody can work from home, instead of commuting into the center, center office, they can go to a, a third space. And if, if there's too much retail and we reposition some of that as spaces of service offerings, it gives people the ability to have a, an office environment close to home. And I think that's a huge opportunity uh, for the retail industry in, in, or retail landlords, in, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I, look, I completely agree with that. And I, I do think, you know, I, I expect to see that hub and spoke or the reduced commuting model absolutely starting to grow significantly. And that's that's based on, you know, both a lot of the big corporate occupiers that I've been speaking to over the last two, three months, but also, you know, I think, if I just look at it through the lens of a company that employs 16,000 people in the UK, you know, we're, we're expecting once people are all sort of back in the office, because obviously we're, you know, like everybody else, we're in this sort of phased return to the office um, period right now. But I do think you're going to start to see, you know, fewer people commuting to, to the office for like five days a week, especially where what they're what they're going to do there is to just they're not going to just do that to do routine tasks that they could do from anywhere. And I do, I do like the I do like the work from anywhere uh, description rather than working from home because, as you say, it, it it doesn't work for everybody at all.
0: Well, I have to say, um, this particular week has been extremely hot by UK standards, and since most of our flats and apartments don't have air con, air conditioning, yeah. um, it I would have much rather have been in an office right now versus working from home. But um, we, we actually we're, we're developing um, a space as a service offering just five minutes from where I live, but it's not ready yet. <laughs> yeah. So I would have I just popped over there um, and, uh, and worked from there for the day um, instead of sitting in my flat. Before we dive into our quick fire questions, I have that one question I want to come back to, and, and I'd love to hear an example of how KPMGs help some of your clients value assets that have space as a service within.
1: Yeah sure. I mean I guess so obviously can't can't go into lots of sort of specific details but um but yeah I mean we've done this and and we've done it through the sort of the the, the methodology really that I talked about before which is to really get into looking at the you know in, in quite a bit of detail you know the underlying revenue streams because obviously you've got you know you've got room revenue you've got meeting revenue you've got other other sort of services that a lot of operators have got a virtual uh, membership which which I in again It's interesting how COVID changes your mindset. I mean, I always used to look at that and think, I'm not really sure that's you know how good a product that is. But actually, um, I think today uh, that that's potentially an area that could grow very very significantly in terms of just giving people access to uh, a whole suite of different um, locations, uh, you know, that they can just come into and almost pay for on a on a usage basis. So it's really unpicking each of those different revenue streams. Looking hard at the kind of the, the the historical track record, looking at how new centres uh, lease up, and then effectively trying to sort of trying to underpin what you think is being sort of the stabilised EBITDA from from a a building when it is fully leased up and when you're actually generating the sort of the, the full level of revenue. And so, you know, we've done that on a couple of acquisitions where we've been working for people to to kind of underpin and help them on their their underwriting. Of you know looking at this uh, you know a, a the intrinsic sort of value of the building if it was let uh, conventionally and then and then adding in sort of again on this sort of sum of the parts basis the uh, the different revenue streams that you can generate and and identifying where you know where where there's sort of risk but also where there's upside so again, one of the examples we we looked at was across a portfolio, and you could see that there were certain locations where you know the level of income on certain revenue streams was was materially below the uh, you know the, the the average or the typical centre and and then you could sort of drill into that a little bit more and try and understand why that was the case and then work out okay does that represent an opportunity to improve profits and then also we did some work around um, sort of benchmarking the again the costs of each of the centres and again trying to see. Where there were particular centres that were more efficient um, than, than than others. So, I mean, ultimately, a lot of this stuff. There's a lot of learnings for this space. I think from the hospitality industry. I think you know, hotels and hospitality are are a great read across for for this sort of space because I just think you know, firstly, the mindset is very customer focused and sec, but also the kind of the the levels of revenue and and you know, let's do more for our customers and and if we do that, then you know, the individual customer profitability will actually will actually go up. So that was the sort of stuff that we did. And then also we looked quite hard at sort of retention and churn and stickiness and how that varied, which then underpinned you know actually the 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 multiple or discount rate that you'd use for things like the meeting room revenue because it, you could really show over a long period of time uh, that actually in a recession, you know, yes, the, the, the rate will come down a bit. And yes, the desk the, the, rate, you mean? You know, the, the desk rate will come down a bit. But actually, you could really see, you know, that there was a very high quality of income that was there um, because you could get data over a very long period of time. And I say, I've got history with certain businesses that goes back to kind of what's well, well pre GFC. And actually, as part of that, looked at what happened post the dot com recession in the early 2000s. You know, you have for a lot of these centers that have been there for a while, um, you can really, really see how they perform through kind of good times and bad. That lets you show, you know, or demonstrate and an evidence sort of the, the the level of variation in the income is is not as much as you you might think. And you know, obviously, the smaller the variation in the income, the higher the quality of the income, and therefore the higher the value that you you describe to it. So that's the sort of stuff that you need to. Um, I think you need to get into, in order to be able to properly think about how you value uh, space as a service, as as a business, um, and that's where I think things need to get to here. But as you said before, there's still a way to go.
0: There's a there's a lot in that in that answer right there, and I think I'm going to probably go back and play this over and over again three or four times and and take notes <laughs> because um, you're you're absolutely right, and I love how you. Um, how you alluded to the network effect um, of having you know multiple assets under um, you know all connected together. Uh, usually we talk about that as a customer benefit um, giving people access to you know they, they might sign up for one location and have access to multiple locations, but you're talking about it as a, as a benefit to to the owner of the asset because you can sort of see the trends across the portfolio and and I love that. Um, you're gonna have your work cut out for you as as spaces as service grows. <laughs> Because um, as more money flows into to this part of the the market, uh, you, you guys, I think at KPMG will be called upon to help value this, especially if as the evaluation methodologies change.
1: Yeah, no, I'm. I'm I hope so. But uh, <laughs> I think it's going to be well, and, and I think you know, I think it's it, it's going to be a really great time for um, for for lots of people. I think you know, we're we're obviously in pretty challenging times, but um, those organizations that kind of come through those challenging times strongly i think um you know i think learn a lot and then and then can really really kick on and sort of grow so um you yeah, know my hope is that uh you know for for, for bold that that's uh, you know that's what i expect you guys to be doing and um you know uh and, and to really continue to sort of to grow and develop your business as well uh you know over the next sort of few years well
0: thank you handy bold is obviously part of the, the the greater newflex group and we we've been looking and having conversations with um with asset owners. And one of the questions that's come up is about, um, you know, what, what is the, the top line revenue going to be? What is break even going to be? What percentage of occupancy should it be? And you know, all those are great questions. And we need, you know, we need to have, um, the, the data to back that up. But where you talked about earlier, and, and I think a lot of landlords and a lot of asset owners who think about square foot rates in, in lease terms, it's a different way of thinking when you talk about the death rate going down. But maybe that's OK in a recession because it's going to be made up by the meeting room revenue going up. People aren't in the yeah. office every day, but they need to come in and have meeting rooms. And I think um, we're seeing that now. I, I just had um, you know, a client reach out to me just last week saying, we ha- we're exercising the break clause in our lease, getting rid of our office space because we've been all been working remotely for the last three or four years. Uh, sorry, three or four months. <laughs> and, um, and, but we need a place to meet um, you know a couple of times a, a month so uh that's that's fascinating to me uh, and I, I, look we could do a whole podcast on this i'm I'm gonna move into the quickfire round now because um that's for another day um andy these are really quick questions and um and, and very light but um who inspires you in our industry
1: that's a really good question i mean lots of people um i suppose the, the first person that really started to inspire me was a former KPMG partner called jonathan thompson he was our UK and global head of real estate at the top. When I came into real estate as a sector full time, 13 years ago, um, and was just very, you know really really passionate about um, about the industry. And so uh, he'll be my fir- my first inspiration. There's probably too many current people for me to for, for me to sort of mention. I would say.
0: Okay, fantastic. Um, I, I I did not know him, so I have to look him up. Is he, is he on social media?
1: Uh- uh, he's on LinkedIn. So okay. he's he's currently the the chair of. Uh, I think he's still the chair of Argent. Uh, and uh, has got some non-executive directorships as well, so he's still he's still active. Re- really, really good guy. Excellent, fantastic. Thank you for that.
0: Okay, uh, similar kind of question uh, about our industry. What sort of podcasts or media do you consume to stay up to date on the latest trends?
1: I have, I'm in a variety of different things. I I I don't I don't do a lot of podcasts around real estate, but actually I've started to listen to to to, to this one, which I think is great. Uh, I think Susan Freeman's had some really really interesting people on quite recently, Uh, and 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 Anthony Slumbers and uh, and and Drew Poleg are also I think really really worth a worth a listen. I do quite a lot of just mining stuff that I see on Twitter in terms of um, you know looking at looking at different sort of source material. Um, I think that's that that's really sort of worthwhile, and then and then just trying to talk to as many people as I can.
0: Well, I think and that's, that's the key, uh, the, talking to the people who are actually going out and in, in innovating and making those changes. Um, I, for me, it's been helpful to have these conversations with you on Twitter, Anthony and Dror, of course. I was so thrilled to, that Dror has taken his newsletter and, and created a podcast out of it. Sometimes it's easier for me to listen versus reading something. Yeah. But um, So, okay, last question for you, and this is completely different. Um, where is your favorite holiday destination?
1: Uh, so I took a sabbatical from KPMG earlier this year and we spent four weeks in New Zealand. Uh, and I think that would be, that would be right at the top. But at the moment, I think obviously the UK is, uh, is, is a great option given, uh, given all of the restrictions that we've got in, but yeah, New Zealand would be my favorite. Well, yeah. If
0: we live in the UK, let's, let's, <laughs> let's travel within the UK. Um, but having said that, I, I, I was just in the Netherlands a couple of weeks ago. Um, and you know, we, we are able to travel around Europe a little bit and, um, but I haven't I haven't ventured over to New Zealand yet. So it's on my list and I will go there one day. Um it looks like they're handling coronavirus very well right now, so hopefully they sustain that.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. It's just uh, yeah, I mean it's it's uh, yeah, it's just a beautiful country and there's just a huge amount of variety in terms of scenery and you know, if you like the outdoors and a bit of walking, um there's just so much stuff that you can do there. But you know, but I think the UK is a massively underrated destination as well, you know. Whether it's sort of Scotland, Wales, or different parts of England, I was in the Lake District last week. Um, yeah, there's a lot to see here too.
0: Absolutely, for sure. There's, I mean, you've got everything in the UK. You've got the beaches, you've got the cliffs, you've got the mountains, you've got uh, luscious greenery and forest. Um, it's here. I am on a tourism podcast now, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: I mean, some, sometimes you get the rain as well, though. That's that's the downside, right? So.
0: Well, definitely get the rain for sure. But um, I, I'm looking forward to rain right now with this yeah. heat. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: Well, look, Andy, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights with us. Uh, really appreciate it. Don't forget to connect with Andy on Twitter, at Andy J. Pyle. And uh, until next time, take care of yourself. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Drumroll, please. P.S. If you want to find out about future-proofing your portfolio, head over to newflex.com.
1: You're listening to a podcast company podcast. This was made by Podcast Syndicator, where we help you go from start to grow to making money with your podcast. Let us help you share your message and your voice with the world. Reach out now, Jason at PodcastSyndicator.com or Brett at PodcastSyndicator.com to find out more. Thank you for listening, and do come back to hear nothing but the best podcasts.